It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. My guest is Michelle Johnson, Las Vegas' first lady of jazz, performing in Home, A Return to Broadway, a musical review celebrating the reopening of Broadway and the resilience of the human spirit. And that celebration is at Myron's Cabaret Jazz at the Smith Center this Sunday, September 26th at 6 p.m. For ticket information, go to thesmithcenter.com. And for everything about Michelle Johnson, go to michellejohnson.com and follow her on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and SoundCloud. And Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. And I'm delighted because you're my first guest that actually is on SoundCloud. (laughs) So there you go. But before we talk about your career and your new show at the Smith Center, can you talk about the challenges for a performer during the COVID time we have here? Oh, sure. I mean, it's been difficult for everyone who was working and had to stop. But for performers in particular, since our business is being around a lot of people, there really wasn't as many options. There weren't as many options for us to do things that could connect to people the same way it would be in person. We found ourselves live streaming and doing Facebook Live and doing some Zoom concerts. But nothing really replaces the connection that you make with people when you're live on stage and looking people in the eye. It's just a certain kind of energy. It's an electricity that can't be replicated through the TV screen or the phone screen. So that's been the biggest challenge is trying to pivot and find other ways to continue with our craft. It is a challenge. And I even if you have 3D within a screen, it's still not the same as you know that you're in the same room as a performer and the performer knows you're in the same room as the audience and there right. is that connection. Right. How did you know you wanted to perform? What, how old were you when this whole started for you? Well, according to my parents, I started singing very early, around two or three, always singing along with the record and, you know, doing little shows with my hairbrush like a lot of little girls or boys who want to be a performer. But I just took to it naturally because my parents used to take me to shows. And I always wanted to be up there on stage ever since I can remember. But on a professional level, I would say probably somewhere around age uh, 11 or 12, I started thinking, hey, maybe I want to do this for my living and not just for fun. And it just evolved over time, doing musical theater and singing in concerts as a kid and continuing through college. And by college, I was pretty sure that's what I wanted to do. So I would say all my life is the answer. And did your parents back you in your decision at an earlier age? Then obviously you you went to Yale and you graduated and you went on to start performing professionally. But even prior to that, did your parents support you in that decision? I think they, they supported my art and my passion for the craft of music and entertainment. But I think my parents thought that like most people who pursue the arts, that I was doing it more as a hobby. I don't think they thought I was going to stick it out, especially since I did go to Yale and I was an English major and 
I was actually on track to possibly go to law school. I was looking at Harvard Law and, you know, doing something more traditional. So the deal I made with my parents was I'll do that route and get my degree so that, you know, the expression, you have something to fall back <laughs> yes, on. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, I they're, they're like, hey, you know, we're investing a lot in this school and we want you to be secure. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll do this to fall back on it. But I knew I knew deep down what I wanted to do. And I think by about my junior or senior year, the gig was up and my parents figured out she's just going to go on and perform. Well, I, <laughs> I think, relax. yeah, I think the case was the jig is up and the gig started. The jig is up. Yeah, that's what I was trying to say. I'm just used to saying the word gig. But I know. The jig was up and the gig was on. <laughs> and, you know, even even after Yale, though, I always had a day job. I mean, I, I didn't really have to not have a day job until very recently because the arts are hard. You know, it's competitive. It doesn't always pay great. And I will say that I don't regret... I certainly don't regret going to Yale, but I also don't regret that my parents wanted me to be very well-rounded and have other skills because, ironically, those skills on those jobs I had, everything from a secretary to a paralegal, working on Wall Street, I've done all kinds of interesting jobs. Every single one of the skills I learned actually informs my musical career on the business side. So. It's really a win-win to be able to do other things. And I think that's why you see a lot of performers are waiters or paralegals or they do voiceover work or they do something else that ends up helping them with their career. Yes, and you have your own business as well. so I do now, yes. Right, right. I, I started a production company a few years ago because I had found that there was something lacking in the in the uh, convention business, which was that most of the production companies that put on shows, you know, put on entertainment at business meetings or at trade shows are run by people who aren't necessarily themselves artists. And so I decided to take more of a artistic approach to the business. And I put together a team of people who are either retired performers or performers who can multitask and also produce other people's shows. And it just gives a really customized, entertainment-based feel to the events. And I love it. I do gospel choirs and singers and bands and jazz trios and all kinds of different things. But at the heart of our business, we are all current or former performers. So we just bring a different perspective to how we put on these events. And I wanted my listeners to get a sense of you, besides being the artist that you are, that you also are a businesswoman and taking care of business in terms of entertainment production, which is also very important in Las Vegas. Yes. It helps to be a one-stop shop because it gives me the opportunity to have relationships with a myriad of vendors beyond just the venue. You know, you end up knowing all the lighting people, the staging people, the wardrobe people. I mean, this is a great town to live in because everybody knows everybody. And it's, it's, I always say Las Vegas is like a big city in a little town. It is. I mean, you can't go 10 feet without running into someone at the bank or, <laughs> or the grocery store. Everyone knows everyone. I love the entertainment community here. People support each other. I loved living in New York. I lived in New York after I went to Yale, and I loved living there. I got great experiences there, built up my chops there. But the family vibe of Las Vegas is something that I 
think sometimes people who aren't in entertainment don't realize is that, you know, you can just meet these entertainers on the street and say hi to them and they'll say hi back. It's just like a very different energy from any other city in terms of that familiarity and the comradeship and the support that we give each other. And, and I try to do that with my business. Yeah, and I think, too, that even though Las Vegas has changed, it's become more corporate, yet the entertainment part of it, the entertainers specifically, and the support staff and engineers and all those types, they still have, as you said, a small-town sense to it, a small-town feel to it. Yes. Which I think helps a lot in terms of, once again, gigs, and also picking the right people for your own performance, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But I wanted you to give a sense of who you are to our listeners, which I'm, I'm delighted that you had. The one thing you Thank mentioned you. about, what is it about the power of a gospel choir? I love gospel choirs, and I don't quite, I can't give you a rational explanation for it, <laughs> but there is something very moving, and it's unlike any other type of choir or singing group. Well, thank you for saying that. I've always thought that it's so powerful when you hear all those voices together. And I mean, there are choirs from all kinds of genres, right? We have choirs in Broadway cast. We have, we have choirs of all kinds of different churches. But I think, I think that the reason that gospel choirs resonate with so many people is because even if you are not a person of faith or you're, you're, you know, you're a different religion, so to speak, from the choir, that happens to be singing, the sound is not easily replicated, and it's just a certain tone and a power to it. it it's earth-moving, it makes people cry, and uh, what, what we do is we do a lot of shows where we're not necessarily singing religious music. It is a gospel choir, but everything we do is not faith-based. Some of it is, but we also... You know, we'll show up and do background vocals for someone like Barbara Streisand. We did a thing with her. We did a thing with Roseanne Cash. We've worked with a lot of celebrities as backup singers on our own and as part of this choir. And I just think that it's that sound is, is something that people want. It, it moves people and it, it transcends religion or a specific message that is necessarily spiritually based. It's, it's, it's a universal energy that gets passed when you hear that sound. And uh, that's, that's what I think anyway. I think also it has an authenticity that is missing in other types of choirs. Well, there's just a rawness and a vulnerability inside of gospel music. I mean, if you think about the roots of it, we're going back to years and years ago when Africans were brought over to this continent and so much of our history is really all American music has its roots in Africa, even though a lot of people don't realize that. And, you know, the, the, the spinoffs of what you were hearing back then is gospel and jazz and blues and even rock and roll and pop. They all have their roots in that. But I think gospel in particular has has the most identifiable connection to that time. And it's a question of turning what used to be pain into celebration and joy, joy of God, joy of spirit, and also just joy of life. And I think that's why you hear that vulnerability and that celebration inside of that sound. So you'll notice that people will just be walking by and 
You know, if there's a church and the doors open and you hear that choir, people will stop in their tracks and go, gosh, they sound good, regardless of their background. Sure. It's just an energy. That's a great explanation. You mentioned in that word jazz, and a previous guest of mine said that he didn't pick jazz, jazz picked him. I'm wondering if that's the case with you. Did jazz <laughs> pick you, or did you pick jazz? That's a great one. Did, did I pick jazz, or did jazz pick me? I will tell you right now that everything I sing, every genre I sing, including jazz, is a result of my childhood, because my parents are both very musical, and they played a lot of different records. So I grew up listening to everything from Sarah Vaughan, and Ella Fitzgerald, and Frank Sinatra, and Dinah Washington, to Carol King, and James Taylor, and my brothers were into a lot of R&B, Earth, Wind, and Fire, the Jacksons, but they were also into, you know, Led Zeppelin, and Black Sabbath, so I have a, a plethora of choices when it comes to what I want to sing, and what resonates with me, and I would say that the reason I leaned more towards jazz is because lyrically I have found that the standards, the Great American Songbook and the standards that were written still hold up as the best lyrical structured pieces of music in musical history, in my opinion. You take any song by Cole Porter or George Gershwin or Harold Arlen and they just stand up in terms of their influence, their longevity and the fact that I can stand up and sing a song that someone like Duke Ellington wrote all these years later and still have to try not to cry getting through it speaks volumes to why those songs touch people's hearts and are so powerful. It is amazing that Great American Songbook, and there were not a large number of people involved in that world, lyricists and composers, but it just sustains itself and grows decade after decade. And I'm delighted that, as I mentioned in the beginning, you're going to be bringing a performance called Home or Return to Broadway, which is a, a musical review celebrating the reopening of Broadway. And part of that will be obviously some of the Great American Songbook, but it's going to be beyond that as well. But I just wanted to get your sense of, because you're known as Las Vegas's First Lady of Jazz, so jazz to me is your main focus. You know, I I don't I guess that's true. Um, you, you can disagree. That, Feel free to disagree. I, I don't. I don't know. I don't want to say that it's the main thing. I know that people like for artists to, you know, identify with one thing or the other. The, the moniker that I got was a result of a fan who used to come hear me at the Gold Coast. His name was Rick, and he used to come hear me. And he started calling me that and telling everyone in the audience there that that's who I was. It's it, it happened in such a funny way. It just, it was like a rumor. And then it just started to spread and then it started to stick. And then I told a couple of my friends in media about it and they started using it. And now I feel really proud about it because I do love this genre. I think there's an underrepresentation of jazz as a, as a genre of music in this city. And, but more importantly is this. You mentioned the show I'm doing. So many of these songs, these Broadway songs from the older musicals, we're talking 30s, 40s, 50s, were actually what we would call jazz standards. And a lot of times, people don't realize when they sing a song that it's from a Broadway musical. They just think of it as, oh, Gershwin wrote that or whoever wrote that, you know. 
Irving Berlin wrote that, but then they don't realize, oh, it's from Babes in Arms or it's from whatever musical you pick. They don't, they don't realize it. And I think that's because back in the day, jazz standards were like what our pop music is today, but they ended up going into those songs ended up going into plays. Right now, you don't hear a lot of pop songs ending up in musicals with the exception of older pop songs like Alanis Morissette's songs went into a musical, Billy Joel's songs were put into a musical, you know, people, uh, Tina Turner, there's a show about her life, it's all her songs, the show, the Broadway show Cher celebrated her music, that's all her songs. So it's still happening, but we don't have the perspective on it right now. We will in 20 years when we look back and go, oh, that musical's based on a bunch of songs that were hit. But right now we just don't think of it that way. Do you think the composers and lyricists of the Great American Songbook thought that their material would still be around and prospering decades later? Well, no, I don't, because I'm also a songwriter. Of course, I'm not a legend or a, a great composer like the people you're talking about. But I can tell you that the majority of songwriters I work with will tell you that they don't think past the composition. It's like, I'm writing this, I'm giving birth to this creation and then I'm going to the next one. I don't think that people are trying to write songs. True songwriters aren't writing them just to create a legacy. They're just taking the song from inside their body and getting it on paper and then putting it out there and seeing what happens. I, I think it's impossible to forecast that kind of success in terms of longevity because you never know what's going to stick or what trend is going to move or how things are going to go. You're just telling a story that hits you at the time. It just seems, though, that period of time, the 30s and the 40s, resulted in so many excellent songs that live on to today, some of which you sing. So it just struck me as maybe they thought that it would last. But I think you're right that they wrote it, they're done with it, they're moving on. Some of it may be incorporated in a Broadway show. Some of it may be played on the radio at the time and eventually on records, etc. But... Just to see, I'd love to be an heir to one of those people because... <laughs> Me the, too. Oh, the royalties. Incredible. <laughs> Incredible. Me too. Too so, bad we're not related to anything. Exactly. <laughs> well, my first name is Ira and there's Ira Gershwin, so I'm working on that angle. So we'll there see how that go. works. Yeah. <laughs> Long lost cousin. <laughs> exactly. So when you're putting together this show at the Smith Center, and it's, as I mentioned earlier, it's both a celebration of the reopening of Broadway and a testament to the human spirit. How do you design that for an audience? In other words, are you picking one from column A, one from column B? How does that work in your mind when you're putting it together? Well, that's the beauty of of doing a show that has such a huge catalog. I mean, when you say Broadway, there are literally hundreds of things to pick from. And so what I'm doing is, first of all, most importantly, I'm doing songs that resonate with me and that I think resonate with others in terms of being recognizable, being popular, and being powerful. Every song we're doing has some kind of a transformative energy behind it, whether it's songs about love, whether it's songs about finding out who you are, songs about transformation. And part of what I'm so excited about is that people are going to know all these songs. We're doing things from Phantom of the Opera, The King and I, Chicago, West Side Story, Oliver, South Pacific, Dreamgirls, and newer things like Evan Hansen, 
it's, it's just going to be incredible. And I think that there will be something for everyone and that people will be singing along by the end, which is absolutely fine by me because that's what it's all about. Exactly. And that's kind of my jam. You know, I, I always try to make my shows make you feel better when you leave than when you walked in. So it's not just, ta-da, look at me, I'm going to sing all these songs. It's Let's rally ourselves. I mean, we've been through an incredibly difficult time right now in their history and the human touch aspect, not being able to hug people, touch people has really impacted people on a psychological level. And for me, these Broadway songs just make you feel good. They make, they make you feel connected to each other because people know them. And I choose my songs based on how they make people feel and uh, what their message is. Nothing is random about it. We're very, very deliberate in how we, structure the show, but we also just want to have a lot of fun and not be too serious and make it all about COVID and pandemic and all that. I mean, that's definitely sort of the vibe of the show is, hey, home, I return to Broadway, but I'm more celebrating, okay, we're back. We're back. We're better than ever. Let's move forward. Let's focus on the positive and let's go home to something we know, which is the incredible transformative power of a Broadway play and the songs that tell a story that has a strong ending. And when you're planning out those songs, are you also planning out your musical background? What I mean by musical background, meaning your musical group that's backing you, are you picking specific people because of the nature of this performance? That's a great question. I, I thank goodness in Las Vegas, we have, you know, a buffet, no pun intended, of incredible musicians to pick from. I have so many friends and colleagues that can play any genre of music. But I definitely try to put together ensembles that will sound good together and that will have a good energy on stage. And yeah, certain musicians are stronger at one genre than the other. And you try to just pick people who you know will do a killer job, who will have a lot of fun. But most importantly, in a show, when I'm when I'm putting together a band or, or background singers or anything like that, is that... They all have to get along really well and gel together because you can take a bunch of superstars and do a show and it's not good. It's just like sports. You can have several great athletes that you spend a lot of money on in a team and then it doesn't work. I mean, it's very similar to that where it's a question of chemistry. And I'm lucky that my musical director is flying in from New York. He's doing another thing in Vegas, a private event, and then he's going to be rehearsing with me to put this on. His name is Mark Hartman. And he's an award-winning, amazing musician, musical director, who has won Mac Awards, which is the uh, Cabaret Awards in New York. And he's done Broadway. And I'm just so excited that he's going to do this with me here. He's never performed at the Smith Center and uh, it's different for me. Usually my musicians are all locally based, but I wanted to spread my wings together and do a little hybrid smorgasbord of some Las Vegas <laughs> musicians and some New York just to give it a little sprinkle of something different. And, and uh, I'm excited about it. I noticed uh, I, now... I love everyone I work with. I noticed you you mentioned not twice you did buffet and then the, you checked the thesaurus and you said smorgasbord. So that's, well, you, that's good. I like to eat. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I do have a lot of food analogies. <laughs> Selling on myself. <laughs> no, it's a lust for it, it's that's a, how it all feels. Yeah, it's a lust for life. It's good. 
Occasionally when you do a show, you have a special guest or a surprise guest. Are you planning one for this? Well, I have two guests confirmed right now. One is Brent Barrett, who is known in Las Vegas for starring in Phantom of the Opera. He's also a Broadway veteran. He's done so many different things, and I'm excited to work with him on this. And he's going to be one of my guests, and he has his own following. He's very well known. Great guy, great voice, and great human being. So he's one of my guests. And one of my best friends is a guest. Her name is Janine Valentine. And she's also very well known in this city. She's done so many different things. And she, I, I, I was so excited she was even available to do this with me. But like me, Janine is, is a, she's, she's a complicated artist. And sometimes I think it's to our detriment if we are versatile. Because what happens is people just don't know what to do with us. You know, they're, 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 like you said, oh, I think of you primarily as jazz. Well, a lot of people, when they think of Janine, they think Broadway or they think classical because she has a group called Paparazzi and they do classical music. And so when you're good at things, whatever you're doing in the moment, everyone assumes is what you do. So sometimes you might get passed up for something because they think, oh, well, she doesn't do that. And so... I'm excited to feature Janine in this this show because I want people to know what a killer singer she is in this genre, and she's a proven entity in a, in her own right. So, well, I'm going to yeah, those I'm, are just two though. There will sure. be more, but those are the only two I can talk about. That's right fine, now. and I'm going to help you with your problem because I'm going to rename it Michelle Johnson, Las Vegas's first lady of music. <laughs> So we, well, if, if you do that, I, I might get dinged for having a big ego. <laughs> no, that way. <laughs> there's, so many great, uh, there's so many great people here. Well, that, um, that way you won't get pigeonholed into one area, see? So that way. Yeah, then they're going to say, I don't know what she does. Let's cancel her. <laughs> Too vague. I mean, you can't win. And I'm not going to ever stop using that moniker because I think that it's very flattering. And I do love Ella Fitzgerald and all of the things she did. And I, you know, I, I do, I, I really love all of it. So I think, I don't know, I just try to have fun and include my friends when I can. And I'm still deciding who else is singing what, because we're still putting together the song list. Sure. Uh, well, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll, we'll keep it, a, we'll keep it a surprise. But before yeah. I, before I let you go, what was your first impression on moving to Las Vegas and how did you end up in Las Vegas? Well, I ended up here because I was dating a guy who was in the middle of thinking about moving here, and he had some family here and some business he had to take care of. So we decided instead of flying back and forth from New York, because in New York I had done Broadway and I had done all this other stuff, and I was touring with other artists. That's the main thing I was doing. I sang with I sang with Elton John, Paul McCartney, all these different people, either in the studio or on stage. And, it, it, you know, sometimes it was one show, sometimes it was a tour. It depends on who the artist was. And so that brought me here originally because I figured out that instead of being on tour with all these artists, I could live here and the artists would come to me because of all these residencies that are happening and all these people who come here, even if it's a one-off. So, for example, I'd be home minding my own business and get the call, hey, Natalie Cole needs four singers for such and such on such and such a date at the Paris. So you just run over there and you do the gig and you come back home. You don't have to pack a suitcase. You don't have to go on tour. 
And so for me, it was, it was an interesting switch uh, when I first moved here because everyone comes here. And it changed my life because I didn't have to live on the road. And then I discovered that you could get in a show here and earn enough money to buy a new home and a new car, which all three of those things for me, a steady gig, a new house and a new car were like pipe dreams in the, living in New York, you know, it's like sure. no way is that ever going to happen. So I liked the lifestyle, really. That's what made me stay. But honestly, Ira, like a lot of entertainers, I came here with the idea that I was going to live here for two weeks or two months. Like first it was supposed to be two weeks. And then he said, well, let's give it two months. And I said, all right, we'll give it two months. And that was in 1995. <laughs> so it's the longest two months of my life. But, you know, I, I love it. I love it. And I've been given so many opportunities here. I've done so many shows, corporate work. I got to sing with the Platters. And I'm still with Sonny Turner and the Platters. I still go on the road with them sometimes. And sang behind so many people. And never had to pack a bag. I got a call once to do something with Barbara Streisand. She needed a bunch of singers for her show at the MGM and didn't have to pack a bag, but still got to put that on my resume. And my choir sang and we had a great time. And there's been a lot of jobs like that. So it started out as a temporary thing and then it turned into one-offs with different artists who were here. And then eventually, like I said, I built that other business doing shows, uh, corporate events. But after all of that happened, I would say what really kept me here beyond that was when Myron Martin got this idea to open this incredible arts center here, unlike anything we've ever seen. And it really bookended what I was craving, which is to have, for want of a better place, a Lincoln-centered type of place here in Las Vegas, to finally have that level of architecture and sound and marketing and gorgeousness and everything. And to have that a place with that level of talent and the variety that they offer, all of it, the class, you know, Broadway series in a beautiful building, another building for local entertainers and cabaret artists and Broadway artists who are doing their own thing in a smaller, intimate way. All of that, to me, just on a personal level, changed the way I feel about the city and why I stayed. Because now we're toe-to-toe with every place else, and it's, it's beyond just casinos and production shows. We have something, we have a gem in the desert, and it's really special, and I love Myron for it, and I love performing there. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Michelle Johnson known as Las Vegas's First Lady of Jazz, performing in Home, a return to Broadway, a musical review, celebrating the reopening of Broadway and the resilience of the human spirit. And that celebration is in Myron's Cabaret Jazz at the Smith Center this Sunday, September 26th at 6 p.m. For ticket information, go to thesmithcenter.com. And for everything about Michelle Johnson, go to michellejohnson.com, and you can follow her on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and SoundCloud. And Michelle, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you so much. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. 
Each week, Ivor David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Yeah.